Welcome to Dear 20-something. I'm Erica, and I'm a 20-something social entrepreneur who is navigating the ups and downs of being in my 20s. Dear 20-something started because we wanted to create a space for ambitious and curious 20-somethings to connect with the successful woman they most look up to. While the 20s can be a time full of questions and doubts we process internally, Dear 20-something is a space where listeners can hear insights, ask questions, and ultimately get advice from the woman they most admire. Today on the show, I am so excited to be chatting with Meg Jay. Meg Jay, PhD, is a clinical psychologist and an associate professor of human development at the University of Virginia, who specializes in adult development and in 20-somethings in particular. She earned a doctorate in clinical psychology and in gender studies from UC Berkeley. Her books have been translated into more than a dozen languages, and her work has appeared in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Harvard Business Review, NPR, and the BBC. Her TED Talk, Why 30 is Not the New 20, is among the most watched of all time. I can't wait to chat with her and share her story with you now on Dear 20-something. Please welcome Meg Jay. Hi, Erica. It's so great to be here. Thank you for having me. Thank you for being here. I could not be more excited. I've been waiting for this day. You inspired this show, and we are just so, so grateful to have you here. That's so great. I so appreciate hearing that I got you going, and who knows how many people you're getting going, so we're just passing it all along. Well, thank you again for being here. Again, I'm so excited to get started, but before we get into your 20s, I like to start the show with a fun and light question. So what is something new that you learned this past week? It could be a new business you're excited about, maybe a book that you just read that you really love, maybe a TED Talk you watched that you learned something from, could be a conversation you had with someone, but something new that you learned in this past week. It would probably be something from today. It was something that was being discussed at work in my office, and then I discussed it later with a teacher who was having the same experience. But anyway, I was seeing clients over at UVA today, and People were talking about how with the pandemic, they could sort of just watch their classes online and not show up for school and just kind of see everything later or virtually or from bed and that they're having a really hard time sort of re-socializing back into showing up for life and just figuring out how to get themselves out of bed into their classes, which was something they knew how to do a couple years ago, but have kind of lost touch with. So I was really hearing about that a lot today and empathizing with that. And then I ran into a high school teacher who said she's having the same experience with her high school students who knew how to kind of come to school and be students for six or seven hours a day a couple of years ago, but that a lot of people felt like they'd lost that sort of skill or way of functioning. So anyhow, that's what's on my mind today. Absolutely. Yeah. I feel like that's so prevalent, even with like work in the working environment, right? Like How do you get yourself to want to be in person? Did you guys talk about solutions that you guys are testing? Or how do you guys think we're going to get past that? I'm curious to hear your thoughts. Yeah, well, I mean, the last client I was talking to about it, I said, remind me what year are you in school? And she said, well, I'm a junior. So you did all this freshman year, right? So what did you do? And she said, well, I got up early and I went to my classes and I showed up for almost all of them and I did better in school and I felt happier and I saw people and everything was better. And I was like, well, sounds like you answered your own question. (laughs) Those are your solutions um, that she already knew what to do. She was doing it before. She's just sort of fallen out of the habit. You know, we all got into a sort of pandemic way of operating, which had its ups and downs. 
And I think now a lot of times people know what they need because they deeply know what's not feeling good. Absolutely. It's like you have that awareness and you know what you should be doing and you remember life doing it, but it's so hard to take that action. Right. You kind of have to make yourself do it. And it's like going to the gym, make yourself do it and see how you feel and try to build on it rather than sitting around kind of waiting to suddenly feel like working the way you used to or to suddenly feel like going out and looking for a job or whatever it is that's been stalled. Maybe we could even stretch it and say that in all areas of life, we've all not been going to the gym, right? Like socially, professionally, health-wise. And so it's a maybe like, if you just have to go to the gym and just focus on your health, that feels manageable. But having that be in all areas of your life and having to do things you haven't been doing feels overwhelming at times. Yeah, it's a lot. It's a lot. To, that's what this high school teacher was saying. I mean, I think she feels it more than I feel it was 20-somethings because, you know, the kids she's working with are younger and may not have had the habits down too well in the first place. But she said she was feeling very overwhelmed that she's trying to teach people a year and a half worth of material while also re-socializing them to life. And I think that that feels like a lot, whether whichever side of the room you're on. Absolutely. Well, great fun fact. Thank you for sharing. I appreciate it. It's good to get a little glimpse into the life of a college professor. So thank you for sharing with us. So we're going to start at the very beginning. We're obviously going to dive into your 20s, but to have context for your 20s, we're going to take it back to when you were younger. So when you were young, what did you want to be when you grew up? Now, when I was young, young, like, you know, when you're seven or nine and you just like want to be stuff without really thinking much about rubber hitting the road on that, I actually wanted to be a writer or a ballet dancer. And I definitely clearly had more potential in the, in the writer area, but I was actually kind of a born writer in a way. I loved writing and I loved stories. We can get back to why it took me so long to actually write a book later if you want to, but that's probably what I wanted to be before I thought about being practical. I think maybe as I headed closer toward college, I was thinking about being a lawyer and definitely not thinking about being a writer anymore. It just seemed like a more practical thing to do. And as you can see, I didn't, I didn't really do either of those things, right? at least not right away. Never made it far down the law path. Absolutely. And when did you decide that you wanted to do psych? Was that in college when you were having that awakening about your future? Yeah, you know, I think college, I mean, not in all ways, but in this one way, college for me happened maybe the way it's quote supposed to. And then I went in with some extremely sketchy ideas about why or how I would be a lawyer. You know, who knows what they were based on television shows I liked at the time, maybe my aunt was a lawyer, and I thought she was really cool. That might have been all that went into it. I am actually very analytical and can win an argument with anyone, even if I'm wrong. However, that's really not my best quality. So I think part of me knew, I don't know, I'm not sure that was going to be the path, but that was the plan. But I did college, I think, like I said, like your quote supposed to. And then I took all the gen ed, did all the this and the that and the requirements and tried out different things. And one day had this epiphany, seems like it would have been obvious, but I mean, I think it had been, I had been taking psych classes for quite a while. I had this epiphany that I loved my psych classes, couldn't wait to do the reading, got great grades in all the classes and just, it was, didn't even feel like schoolwork because I loved it so much. And a little light bulb went off that, duh, I should probably be a psychologist instead of a lawyer. So that was the plan. So I was already a psych major at that point. 
point, but then that became a clear, that's the plan. Even though I didn't go directly to graduate school for it, that was generally the direction I was headed. You know, it's funny. We do hear a lot of people say that from TV shows or a family member, that's why they decide their childhood career. Like the lawyer thing makes sense. It's like, it's not really rooted in anything, but I knew someone who did it or I saw someone who did it. So when you were studying psychology and you had this like aha moment, this feels like fun, this homework doesn't feel challenging. Is that the kind of advice that you give your 20 somethings now, like that you chat with? That's the kind of career path you should go down? Or was that just your experience? Because I think a lot of the times people can be in college and taking electives and maybe they really love studio art and it doesn't feel like homework. It's rare that someone, I don't know, loves chemistry or something like that. But you know, people have those classes that they love. And is that the advice that you give people when choosing a career path? Well, you know, there's no like one size fits all. But I mean, I think the sweet spot perhaps is a combination of something you really enjoy or like or love or are good at. And it doesn't have to be all those things, but something like that. And something that, you know, I'm a very practical person, so I'm going to add the piece and something that's going to help you live the life that you want or need to live. So like you said, someone may love their studio art class, but they may not have the sort of the talent to make a living at it. As a psychologist, I'm not sure I needed a lot of talent as much as I just needed to go to school and do well and learn from good people. So, you know, you kind of have to figure out what is it that I enjoy enough or that challenges me enough or feels meaningful enough so that my career doesn't feel empty. But often there has to be that rubber hits the road piece of, you know, does this make sense for me? Is this something that I could do for 5, 10, 15-ish years to get started that will kind of make my life possible? But, you know, I definitely tell people, you know, there's a lot of talk around, oh, you know, you've got to do your passion and like do what you love. And I mean, I'm really of two minds on that. I mean, I did love psychology and it has made my job very enjoyable. But sometimes you have to be careful about doing what you love because when what you love becomes work, you tend to love it a bit less. (laughs) So after college, my first job out of school was as an outward bound instructor. And I did love, my studio art was maybe like rock climbing. You know, I love taking people on outdoor adventures and going rock climbing. But if you do it for five years, 250 days a year, you don't go rock climbing on your days off anymore. And that thing that you loved doing is now your job. So anyway, it's worked for me to have something that I really enjoyed and I really got and really resonated. And I did love it. I do love it. But when you make something your job, sometimes you kind of take away your hobby and you turn it into work. So threading that needle can be tricky. Yeah, that's such a great point. And I feel like you're actually one of the few guests we've had on our show who has stuck with the career path they decided in college which is actually pretty remarkable because whether it was you knew you liked it and it was a greater confidence or it just worked out that way, you know, we've had a lot of people that sort of just have more of a winding path. And so I'd love to chat a little bit more about your thought process as you were leaving college or maybe right before. You obviously were a psych major and we all know you've now gone on to be a professor and therapist and all the things, but you decided to go be an outward bound instructor, like you said, Can you tell me a little bit about that decision and if you had clarity that you knew you wanted to do psych or if you still maybe weren't so sure and decided the outward bound route? I guess I have kind of been, quote, on the same path throughout. But one of the reasons I chose psych, it's an extremely wide path with a lot of branches. 
So in the 25 years or so that I've been in some form of this path, I've done a lot of different things. And I don't know if my careers looked exactly the same for any two or three straight years in a row. So I've kind of figured out my field. And then within my field, I've moved around a lot. And that's probably will be true for a lot of your listeners. I mean, at this point, I don't see me switching to computer science or anything. But there's so many different ways that I can be a psychologist without doing like one thing for 20, 30, 40 years. So to your question, majored in psychology, thought I wanted to be a psychologist. But again, like, I mean, I was... 21. So I'm not sure how much I really knew about what that looked like or what I would even enjoy. It's certainly what I imagined at the time is not what I'm doing now within it. But I did know I was quite burned out after college, after like a lot of people. So I needed to take a break from school. Clinical psych grad school is a good seven years on average, and it's pretty grueling. So I needed a break before that. But I needed to work in the field. I mean, and I didn't have any qualifications, right? I just had an undergrad degree in psych. So I needed to do something that was sort of with people or special populations, somehow psych related, but I needed a break from school. I wanted to be young and outside and get paid to travel around like everybody else. So Outward Bound kind of offered that. I specialized in special populations. So I worked with adjudicated youth or survivors of violence or Vietnam veterans or CEOs from Wall Street. So all of my groups were sort of special populations. So it was was somewhat psych related. There was a lot of leadership training, obviously, and a lot about kind of self-improvement. So I did that just long enough to completely wear myself out and decide that grad school sounded pretty great. So at that point, I went back to grad school and had decided that, yes, I was going to go for clinical psychology. But still, I think at the time, one reason I chose it is because I knew I could be a clinician and have a private practice. I could be a college professor and teach classes. I could be a researcher and, you know, do all these cool studies. I could I don't even know if I thought about writing books yet, but there were so many things I could do. It felt like a choice I could make that still felt like it was opening up more than it was closing down. Absolutely. That's fascinating. And it sounds like while you were at Outward Bound, you knew that was going to be like your break before you went to grad school. So it wasn't like you decided after Outward Bound, okay, now's the time. You kind of always knew and you used that period to really, like you said, learn from amazing people, travel, be outside, do your passion of you know being in nature. Is that right? That you kind of always knew that that was the path and you needed that break? Yeah, that was the plan. Let's go. We'll we'll say it was a plan, but I mean, it was, I mean, I think I'll never forget this. So at the end of Outward Bound, I think I moved to Boulder because I had to sort of not live in a tent and prep for the GRE, which is the admission test, you know, for grad school. And I had to do my applications, which was huge. I mean, there's just like a million essays, extremely challenging to get into clinical psych grad school. So I couldn't just like dash this off by a headlamp somewhere. So I moved to Boulder to get this done. I think it probably took me, you know, like six to nine months of living there to do all this, the application process and the tests and stuff. And while I was living there, I was working in a health food store to pay the bills so I could get my applications into grad school. And I think maybe I was one day I was like ringing up health foods at the store and maybe I had the GRE book on the counter next to me. And one of the people I was checking out 
said, oh, you are you trying to go to grad school? And I said, yeah, I'm trying to go in clinical psych. They said, where do you want to go? I said, Berkeley. And they chuckled like, good luck with that, you know, getting from grocery store checkout girl to going to UC Berkeley. And I never forgot that because it was sort of a moment of just what a leap it was, you know, or maybe that it seemed to this person who was maybe semi-judging me, ringing up groceries, but also just had a, didn't know anything about my background and had, maybe had a hard time imagining, how do you go from ringing up groceries to being a student at Berkeley? So, you know, I would guess what I'm saying is it was the plan, it was the path. I mean, maybe in some ways it was a bit far-fetched, but I set my mind to it and that was what I... That was what I did. Exactly. And it all came together. And you know what? You did get into UC Berkeley. And that person is looking at you now. They've probably seen your best-selling books and your TED Talk, and they're kicking themselves. See, they don't know it was me. You know, I'm sure they don't even remember they said that. But I remember, because they looked at me like I was crazy, like, girl, you don't get from ringing up groceries to going to a, a top graduate school. But guess what? Sometimes you do. Sometimes you do. And I think that's amazing. And I think, you know, so many people now, we're all trying to make ends meet. People work multiple jobs. So you obviously prove them wrong. Okay, so after you were at Outward Bound, you're working at this health food store, you submit your nine months of applications, which is crazy. And then you actually get into UC Berkeley, which congratulations, very exciting. And, you know, actually, I will say that as a plug for, you know, it doesn't have to be the straightest path in the whole world, even a path like mine that sort of seems straight because it was all psychology related. But I've definitely taken my detours, you know, within that. I'm the only person in my class at Cal who didn't go to an, I mean, I went to University of Virginia, which is really awesome college, but I was the only person in my class at UC Berkeley who didn't go to an Ivy League. And when I went for my interviews, what really stood out about me was that I was a little bit older than your average applicant. I mean, not by a ton, but by a smidge. I mean, I I had been out for a few years. I had life experience and I had been doing really cool things like leading trips all over the country with Outward Bound. And so I think that actually helped me in ways that like I couldn't have competed on a straight path of competing with the Ivy League grads who been in four research labs and already had their names on some papers. I didn't have any of that. So I kind of had something else, which I think ended up helping me a lot. Yeah, makes perfect sense. And I think this is actually a good segue before we get back into your 20s, into this concept of identity capital that you talk about a lot in your book. This idea that in your 20s, you should be collecting identity capital and it's not necessarily, I mean, you can say it better than I can, but it's not necessarily like the perfect grades and the perfect job and the perfect thing. It's figuring out ways that are going to enhance your identity so you can eventually tell your story to an employer or a grad school. Could you talk a little bit about that concept of identity capital and especially for people who may be applying to whether it's grad school or other jobs and their path doesn't look so linear How do you capitalize on your past experiences? Yeah, so the concept of identity capital is just the idea that you don't have to figure out in your 20s who you're going to be always and forever. I mean, even though I I knew like, well, I think I'll do the psychology thing. I didn't really know how that was going to pan out or how that was going to look. So instead of trying to figure all that out forever, it's really just making good use of your time. So your time is your biggest resource in your 20s. So to think about using it to invest in yourself, to make sure that whatever job you have, especially if it's for more than a minute, 
that you're doing something that adds value to who you are. So Outward Bound is a good example of a job that had tons of identity capital, even though it wasn't some briefcase corporate job. It had loads of other identity capital. Now, my ringing up groceries job probably had relatively no identity capital, but it helped me focus instead on crushing the GREs or writing really good applications, which was identity capital I needed at the time to sort of move ahead into grad school. So they've done some cool research about how your learning curve in your 20s really translates into your earning curve in your 30s and beyond. And so, I mean, most of the 20-somethings I know are pretty struggling and pretty broke, as was I all through my 20s. But I was learning a ton and I was accumulating a lot of identity capital. And then once I got into my 30s, I had a great degree, I had great training, and I was sort of ready to Zoom. And I think for a lot of people, that's how it's going to look. I love that idea of putting priority on learning in your 20s and then earning later, because I do think when you are in your 20s, sometimes there is actually a huge trade-off between learning and earning. Like I have a lot of friends who have two job offers. One is lots of learning, basically no earning. And one is lots of earning and not too much learning. And so is your recommendation when people are in situations like that, of course, they have to pay the bills and, you know, be able to eat. But are you saying you recommend that learning path in your 20s? Well, I mean, again, no one size fits all. But I guess I would think try to have the long view and to think about the long game. And there are definitely things that I could have done in my 20s to earn more than I did. No, I don't think any of them would have been amazing or would have carried a 40-year career, but I definitely could have earned more in my 20s than I did. But I think I would have hit a ceiling a lot faster at some point in terms of either my interest or my ability to grow. So for me, it worked out. I mean, and I was broker than broke all throughout my 20s, but managed to sort of always be attached to a graduate school or a program like Outward Bound that was, you know, somehow feeding me or giving me health insurance. So I just kind of limped along. And so that worked out for me. But yeah, like we do have to figure out how are we going to eat? How are we going to pay our rent? But don't be afraid to use your 20s to learn that you do still have time to earn money. A lot of people hear about I think some people misunderstand maybe some of my work or if they just see the TED Talk and don't read the book, they have this sense of like, well, if I'm not making money by the time I'm 30, it's too late for me. And I definitely wasn't making money by the time I was 30, but I was putting myself in a good position to have a lot of career autonomy and to do well in my career, you know, if that's what I wanted to prioritize. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's great advice. And I totally hear you. No one size fits all, but be open to learning over earning and prioritize that. Absolutely. So to get back to your 20s, I do want to hear a little bit more about this PhD program. I know specifically, I can think of one audience member I know of, but thinking about graduate school and thinking about pursuing that degree, how did you enjoy it? And what advice would you give to someone who is maybe considering going to get their PhD? And like you said, it's seven years, right? It's a huge commitment, especially if you're doing that throughout your 20s. So what advice would you give to someone who's considering that path? It's long. So I would say that you want to think about things, not just, is it the best school or is it, you just want to think about a lot of different variables. So for me, I knew it was going to be seven years. I was starting in my latter half of my 20s. So by like, do the math on that. By the time this was over, I was going to be in my 30s. If you do the math on that, I was maybe going to be meeting a partner in there somewhere. I was maybe going to be kind of 
establishing myself. So I only looked at schools where I wanted to live for seven years. I mean, this is no blip. That's a pretty long time. And you often meet your sort of lifelong professional contacts. You may meet some of my best friends I went to graduate school with because it was such a long road we did together. I met my partner just as I sort of statistically predicted based on my age. But I mean, by the time I was done, I was pregnant. So I guess just to sort of imagine that this is going to be probably a good 10 years of time, you know, like on either end, you may not fly out of there the minute you graduate either. So we're somewhere that you would like to spend 10 years of your adult life that may have things available for you besides just school and work? I mean, is it an area where you like the people or you could find like-minded folks to be friends or partners with, or you like the culture? That all mattered to kind of the quality of life because it was going to be a pretty important 10-year period of my adulthood. I mean, I will also say just totally transparent here. PhD programs are a struggle. I did not love every minute I was in graduate school. I mean, they're hard. They're really, really hard. However, I knew why I was doing it. And I'm really glad I did it because I walked away with that degree and amazing training and really smart colleagues and really smart peers. And that has carried me or launched me into everything that I wanted for beyond graduate school, but graduate school is a struggle. I think if you're going to go to business school and you're out in two years or, you know, maybe even law school, it's going to be a rough three years, but PhD programs are long and they can be difficult. So you want to find ways to like be happy outside of school as you go through that. Absolutely. Yeah. That's great advice. And I love this idea of picking the right location because so much of Life is actually not just about work. It's about finding a partner. It's about finding friends. It's about loving your favorite restaurant down the corner and having more of a life outside of that. So I think this idea too of identifying a city that you like or you know a school that you like, because it is a huge part. And like you said, it was end of 20s, early 30s that you were there. So for me, what I did was PhD programs are tough to get into. So you often don't have your pick. So I just looked at, I don't even remember now, but you know, seven or eight programs that were all in places that I thought, you know what, I could live there for a decade, I could maybe meet a partner and maybe not like get stuck there. But maybe I mean, who knows, right? You're if you meet a partner there, they might live there and you might not be moving. So I only looked in places that I was really willing to spend a good chunk of my adult life. Thank you for sharing that. So I have a question while you were in your PhD program. I know you also actually got a PhD in gender studies, just clinical psychology and gender studies. So I'd love to know. And then of course you have, you have since focused your career on 20 somethings. So I'd love to know, like when you were in your PhD program, what were you thinking you would focus on? Were you interested in a certain gender? Were you interested at that time already in 20 somethings in that age group? Had you started to identify what you wanted to specialize in during that time? No. And that's a great example of how you can look at my path and it looks like, oh, she knew from the time she was 20, she was going to be a clinical psychologist. I think I thought 
that, but I mean, I don't know that I knew what it would look like. And I certainly didn't know what I would specialize in. I don't even know if I knew you had to specialize in anything. In undergrad, I really did not know what that meant other than I could continue in this field, which I found interesting and fun and it didn't feel like work. For grad school, you have to sort of say that, oh yes, I want to do X, Y, and Z, because they're not going to let you in if you say, you know, I really don't know what I want to do. So I'm just going to show up and check things out and see what, you know, kind of resonates. You won't get into graduate school like that. So you, at the seven or so schools I looked at in the seven or so cities that I could live in. And again, these schools were programs that I felt like were good enough that if I'm going to give them seven years of my life, they're going to launch me into something good. And that had good like benefits of teaching and, you know, that I wasn't financially going to be completely strapped. So I had the sort of all these factors And then at each school, now this is the way it works in psychology. You have to see like who's on faculty there and what are they interested in. And when you go interview, you sure are interested in those things, you know, even though you don't know and everybody knows you don't know, but it's a game that everybody plays. So I think I thought I could have gone a lot of directions. I was really interested in neuroscience. I was really interested in psychometric testing, you know, like all kinds of psych assessments, I thought I was interested in working maybe with kids. So acted like I knew what I wanted to do more than I really knew what I wanted to do. And then once I got into grad school, it was a bit like college again, where I took all the classes I was supposed to take. And along the way, I figured out that there was something that really resonated with me more than anything else. And that turned out to be 20-somethings, which really wasn't an area that people were focusing on at all. And so that ended up working out for me too, because it was, you know, kind of an area that I could shine a light on that, you know, had been pretty neglected. You've definitely shown a light on it. It's really awesome. And I think that the seven years hopefully gave you that space to like explore all these different areas. And yeah, so I, I did the double degree also in gender studies, which was another thing that I was interested in. I was teaching. And so I taught psych of gender and really loved that. And I had some I won't bore you with all the details, but there were some good mentors that were in both departments. And so it was just kind of a way to, you know, keep it interesting for me. And I was interested in feminism. And so just being able to kind of have that alongside the more sciencey side of psychology was kept it smart for me. Yeah. You know, it's funny hearing you talk about this. Like in my personal life, I love these like psychometric tests. I love learning about like gender studies and things like that. And so to hear you say you've made a career out of it, I'm like, wow, this sounds like a pretty good gig. A lot of my college classes, like all my electives, I took psych classes. And so I think you might be uh, creating some psychologists in the crowd. We'll, We'll have to wait and see. Well, it is a great life. And I have to say, so, I mean, I don't even know if I could tell you all the things I've done since I graduated, but let me see if I can think of them. I opened a private practice right away, like first minute, but that usually starts small. You know, you have one client, then you have three clients. So, I mean, rarely is that your full-time job from the beginning. And it can be kind of a burner. So a lot of people keep it part-time throughout, which I have. I started teaching at Cal. So I did was a professor, like adjunct kind of. I didn't, I was never interested in the tenure track because I wanted more freedom and autonomy and just didn't want to get stuck in that machine. But I taught for at Berkeley for a few years. 
I was a consultant at a private school out in California for several years. And these were all like at the same time, you know, so each one is probably getting, you know, 10, 15 hours a week, my time. Oh, and I taught a class over to Psychoanalytic Institute. Then I moved to Charlottesville and then went kind of hardcore private practice and wrote The Defining Decade and then have kind of popped in and out of student health over the years because I really enjoyed that a lot and wrote another book. And then, of course, now I give a lot of talks and I do a lot of consultations, whether they're at like for companies or individuals or who knows what. And then actually right before the pandemic started, I got back in the quote classroom and was a professor on semester at sea, which was tons of fun. I could go on and on and ask you so many questions about your 20s, but I want to make sure I'm leaving space for our wonderful listeners who have, I'm sure, lots of questions themselves. So I'm just going to ask you one final question and then I am going to hand it over to them. So if you could say one thing to every 20-something in the world. I know you wrote a whole book on it. So you've got a lot of words to say to 20-somethings. So for people who want to learn more, obviously read The Defining Decade. It's an incredible book. But if you could say just one thing to every 20-something, what is that one piece of advice that you would give them? I mean, I guess what I'll say is, is maybe the through line of the book is make the time count, that it's a very unique period of time that you probably won't have again in a lot of ways, not just in terms of hey, I could probably go on a trip around the world and not miss a beat. It's also a great time for graduate school or to try out relationships and really learn something before you make your, maybe your first and last choice on that. But no matter who you are, just make the time count. Amazing. Well, thank you so much for that, Meg. We're going to now switch it over to the Q&A portion of our show. Amazing. We have a request from Danny. Come on up. Awesome. Well, Meg, thank you so much for being here. I love your book so much. I'm not a big reader, but your book changed me and made me think about becoming more of a reader because I love reading books like the one you wrote. I have a pretty random question. I'm really into psychology, as I think a lot of people here are, and therefore really into personality type tests. And I wanted to know with your, you know, clinical psych experience, if there's anyone in your mind that sticks out as really helpful for your clients or, you know, your personal life for family and friends. But if there's any test that really strikes out as like the number one personality. Oh, Danny, that's a good question. And thanks for saying hi and that you love the book. I really appreciate that. I'll tell you the one that I hear about the most that maybe over the years has come up in terms of it being not just sort of interesting from a self-reflective point of view, but useful in terms of people's lives is, I don't even know if this is a personality test. I don't really guess it is, but it's the whole love language thing that a lot of my clients over the years have said it's been very useful for them to understand what their love language is and what their partners or multiple partners love languages are, because that's where some kind of miscommunication or partners miss each other is we're giving people love in the way that we think we want it, but maybe it's not the way that they want it. So I guess over the years, I've probably found that to come up the most in session of people saying that that has really helped their relationship. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, I love that one. So glad that you brought that one up. Thank you. Meg, what is your love language? Do you have like a number one that you really love? I don't know if I remember them all off the top of my head, but I think I'm very much an active service gal. Not surprisingly, you've read my book. I'm sort of like walk the talk kind of person. (laughs) 
So that definitely tracks. Yeah, yeah. So I don't want flowers. I don't want people to give me poems. I want them to like do the dishes or give me a ride to the airport or, you know, kind of show up for something when I need it. That's probably my love language. I'm words of affirmation. So conversations like this feed in my soul right now. I'm just having a great time. Okay, C, we just brought you up. Feel free to ask your question. Hi, Meg. Great to meet you. Thank you for sharing your words of wisdom. The 20s are a time of sort of internalizing what happened in childhood and beginning adulthood. Do you have advice for people in terms of when to enter therapy or to do some self-reflection so that their adult years can be more successful in that they've processed some of their childhood things and 20-year-old things? Do you have any recommendations that way? Yes. Well, that is a perfect segue. I'm not a big book plugger, but you just kind of laid out the the carpet there for my other book. It's called Supernormal. And it's about adults. And, you know, frankly, it's mostly young adults, even though I didn't, it's not a 20 something book, but it's about adults who grew up with different kinds of adversity, different kinds of like tough times, whether it was alcoholism in the home or a sibling with mental illness or bullying or whatever the case may be, and how the reason this is relevant to me as a 20-something person is that exactly like you're saying, a lot of people get into their 20s and only then are they sort of cognitively and emotionally ready to make sense of what has happened in the 10, 15, 20 years that came before and to say, well, it's my life now, so how can I make sure I'm a better parent or I have a better partnership or I have a better life or I have a different life than maybe the one that I grew up with, which didn't feel that great. So, you know, I'm a 20s person. So I say a great time to do that work is in your 20s. And I don't have like a specific year for that. But the reason I'm choosing that era is because it is that kind of between time where people are standing between like they're out of the house or they're out of the city or the situation that maybe was problematic but they haven't yet chosen a partner or kind of fully laid out how their adult life is going to look. So in that in-between moment, you get to help that person reflect on what's gone on and then what they want the next 10, 20, 30 years to be like. And there can be a lot of power around doing it differently than what you saw or doing it differently than people did it to you or than people did it around you. And so I think... For maybe some people they're doing that at 22 and other people are doing that at 29. And of course, it's not too late at 32, but just in that in-between time, you can help people really flip the script on their lives. And that's one reason why I think that's a really powerful time to work with people around adversity and trauma. Awesome. Thank you, Meg. Yeah, I know you said in Supernormal that like, I think it's like 75% of people experience some sort of adverse childhood trauma. So when C asks who should do it and when they should do it, it's like almost like everyone, because if you go through the list that you lay out, it's divorce, it's death, it's bullying. It's a lot of these things where most humans will experience at least one. Yeah. The Supernormal didn't intend to be a 20-something book. I mean, it because I think a lot of people are kind of always doing that work throughout adulthood, but I think it can especially be helpful to young adults who have, I mean, one of the reasons I wrote it is because it's a very common experience for me as a 20-something therapist for somebody to say, hey, I've never told anybody this before, but, and then they say, you know, whatever the case may be, they were 
sexually abused by a coach or that their parent had a drinking problem. And so often that is first addressed in the 20s. Then you've kind of got your whole adult life to kind of make sure that, you know, your life going forward is better than maybe the one in the rearview mirror. Yeah, that's some great advice. And I know a lot of us will be reading that book after this chat. So, and just so everyone knows too, we'll be linking all of Meg's books in our show notes as well. So you can have easy access to all of these. All right. Our last question, we have Lindsay. Lindsay, go ahead and ask your question. Hi, Meg. I'm so grateful for this opportunity to talk with you. I also read your book and loved it. And I also majored in psychology. So I love learning all about everything that you preach. My question is, have you noticed a trend or a correlation with any mental health disorders with social media and kind of the rise of social media in 20-somethings and how it's affected decisions and mental health in general? Yeah, I mean, I'll quickly say that the first edition of The Defining Decade came out in 2012 when social media was just barely a thing. Facebook was the only social media outlet really around. And so everybody was joining that. And I was watching it happen in real time where people would say, oh, you know, I think I'm going to join Facebook. And then they would join Facebook and not be able to talk about anything else except for (laughs) what they saw on Facebook and how they felt miserable. And so that's qualitative data, but I kind of watched that happen really for millennials. And then now, of course, it's Instagram, it's TikTok and Snapchat and whatever, but it's sort of different forms of, of the same thing. And I guess, I mean, I think like a lot of things, it's not whether you do it, it's how you do it. So for me and social media, I just really ask my clients to look at how they're using it in, in terms of making time count and trying to be intentional to pay attention to how do I use the platforms that I'm on do they make me happy or do they make me sad? Do they make me feel good about myself or do they make me feel anxious about what I'm not doing or what other people have that I don't have? So I definitely see some of my clients, their social media use makes them bummed out and anxious. And, you know, I think all the correlational data that's out there is all correct. Although, you know, of course, not everyone is is going to use it in a way that that isn't useful for them. So it's kind of one of the new adult responsibilities is figuring out how to manage that. The piece for me, which I really get going on, oh, that's what I was going to say, that the new updated edition of The Defining Decade just came out in 2021. So there's a whole updated chapter on social media called My Life Should Look Better on Instagram because, you know, it's Instagram now, but there's also another chapter called A Social Experiment, which I'll just let y'all read if you haven't read it. But what the point it tries to make is that for me as a defining decade person, it's the amount of time that people spend on social media that concerns me that it's, I routinely ask if I have a new client, I say, okay, you know, tell me about your social media use. How much time do you spend per day? routinely the hour, the answer is about four hours a day. And so I just said that my biggest piece of advice to 20-somethings is to make sure they make the time count. And I really don't think that four hours a day on social media is probably counting for you, that there are other things that you could do with that time that might help you feel happier or healthier or sort of more forwardly mobile. So to me, that's the biggest concern is, I mean, we already all know about the depression and the anxiety if you spend too much time sort of scrolling and doom scrolling and comparing and despairing. But to really, for people to do a screen check, a gut check on how much time they're spending 
and what else they might be doing with that four hours a day. That's such great advice. And I hate to say it, but I feel like if you were to actually look at their screen time, it might be a little more than four hours. Like, I think people cut it in half. I actually do. I, yeah, I usually say like, well, because they'll say, well, I don't know. I'm like, well, let's see. Don't you know you can look? Well, we're going to look and, you know, or I'll have a, you know, track it for a week and then come in the next week and we talk about it, that it's, I mean, this is the steps you take per day on your Fitbit or nutrition that you're putting in your body is, or, you know, substances, how much you're drinking or smoking pot or whatever. This is just another substance to manage. And I think that it's very easy for this to be unhealthy and that it takes a lot of sort of intentionality around making sure that your social media use, it's working for you. And so a lot of my clients end up deleting apps from their phone and then maybe they're only on the laptop because they're not going to be constantly, you know, just unconsciously habitually checking that or, you know, they'll set up limits or blocks or, you know, whatever, but it takes a lot of effort to kind of keep it in the healthy zone, unfortunately. Yeah. I love this idea of thinking about it like a health metric, like either it's like steps you're taking or, you know, food you're eating. I think that can really help because we bucket it in technology and social media is this like totally separate part of our lives, but it's actually because it's impacting our health, we should be tracking it and our use because too much is not good. So I think I've actually never heard it spoken about that way. And for a topic that we are always talking about, it's, it's an interesting way to hear you explain it. Awesome. Well, and like you said, obviously your updated version of the, you know, defining decade book, has a lot of stuff about this. So for anyone who's interested, definitely check that out. And I will say too, I watched a documentary called The Social Dilemma. Mm -hmm, It really does such a great job of like illuminating this problem even more and like action steps that we can all take to manage our own social use. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, Meg, for being here. This has honestly been such a huge highlight for me. You really are the reason that I did start this show. And so any great conversations we have, anything that ever comes of this, I give you permission to take full credit. (laughs) So- I just want to thank you again. It seriously has been such an honor to chat with you and have you share your words of wisdom with us. Could you let everyone know where they can follow you on social media? And then of course, we'll be linking all of her books in our show notes so everyone can get themselves a copy. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm a walk the talk person, believe it or not. I'm not on social media. I'm just not. So I think I have a Twitter account, but the last time I posted was probably about five years ago. But if you want to send me a message based on our conversation, if there was something you wanted to ask, but just didn't want to raise your hand tonight, my website is megj.com and there's a place you can message me. And I would love to hear your thoughts, your comments, or your questions. So I'll give you that. Awesome. Thank you so much. Yes, everyone take her up on it. Do it. Reach out. And yeah, I love you walk the talk. I know you have an outdated, a little bit outdated Twitter account, but you do post some good stuff on there. I did some stalking before we before we hopped on. So when was my last post? Probably five years ago. Yeah, I think it was like 2017 or something. If I, and then you did maybe like one a year for the past like 10 years. But it's good. It's great. And then of course, everyone definitely will be linking her TED Talk, which is absolutely incredible. One of the most viewed of all time, I know, and definitely very life-changing. So if you don't have time maybe to read the book, I definitely recommend maybe checking out the TED Talk because it's so good. Well, thank you again, Meg, for joining us. If you guys enjoyed this conversation, Please give us a follow over at Dears20something on Instagram and subscribe, rate, review anywhere you get podcasts. Thanks, everyone. Thanks, Erica. Bye, Meg. Thanks. Thanks.